This last week was Senate Convention, and I had an extra conference I presented at in the Dells. And I can say that we are happy to be home. Because there's something that happens when you are away from home. You eat out a lot. And all this food, while it tastes good, is really not all that great. Full of preservatives and, and other junk. My breakfast most of the week consisted uh, purely of donuts. And being a pastor's convention, I was heard more than once, come over and, uh, to my house and let's talk theology over some beer. Well, in the moment, all this food is its the best thing ever. But it doesn't take long to realize that it doesn't really fill you up until you just end up eating more junk food. I think Corin even gained a few pounds this week. Our text from Isaiah this morning is about a feast. It's a feast, not of the, the kind of food that, that we had this past week, but a banquet of rich food, a banquet of aged wines with the best cuts of meat and the finest wines. Feasting is one of Scripture's main reoccurring themes. Heaven is called the marriage banquet of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, Moses and the Israelite leader, leaders ascended up the mountain, and God descended to feast with them. God gave the Old Testament Israelites the Passover meal, the Old Testament. Jesus instituted the New Testament in his blood, the Lord's Supper, as he celebrated the, the last Passover with his disciples. Our gospel lesson today is the account of the great banquet from Luke 14. And I've heard it said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is always on his way either to a meal, having a meal, or just leaving a meal. And it isn't just a coincidence that God uses meals in this way. He's directing us to something. It's not just a coincidence that God gives us a meal for the Lord's Supper. So this morning, I want to use this text from Isaiah to show the blessings that God gives us through his holy meal. Meals imply unity. If you go to somebody's house to watch a football game, there's probably some food there, right? A meal. You're all probably there rooting for the same team, uh, or at least you're rooting against whatever team uh, the other team is playing. If you go to a graduation party, you're all there to eat and, and support the person who's graduating. So you have a meal in their honor. You say by eating together that even though we're all different, we're at least united on this. Are we all like the, the Packers, or we support this, this one person. Or at Thanksgiving, we're all family and we love each other, I guess. With our meals, this is a contrived unity, right? But with God, it's more than that. It's real. In fact, that's why we practice closed communion. This happened to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. The church in Corinth at the time of St. Paul, thought that the most important thing was uh, when they came together, that they were united in external things. They were united in how similar they were to each other. Their social status, their class, their wealth, their opinions. And so when they came together as a congregation, they were not communal. They shared only with their friends, not with new converts or the poor. So St. Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and he says that you actually aren't united at all. 
And he, and he advises them to stop celebrating the Lord's Supper until they repent and actually be united in their hearts and love each other. Sometimes we'd rather not be united to each other. Sometimes we'd rather not celebrate the Lord's Supper and have communion with other people. The most surprising aspect of the feast that Isaiah mentions is not what amazing food is there, but who it's for. The Lord of armies will prepare for all peoples a feast. In our gospel lesson, many people were invited to the great banquet. The ones who should have been the first to recognize what great meal this was and come, didn't. Unfortunately, they began to make excuses, and they weren't even good excuses. No one goes and buys a field without first looking at it. These are people who unfortunately think they're too good for it. They don't need it. They're like the Corinthians. This feast that Isaiah is talking about, what's heaven? Heaven is perfect unity with God. And God invites all peoples, the rich, the poor, the outcasts and despised, to come to the feast. It's the new Garden of Eden. Feasting in paradise with God and with each other. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of this on earth. It's a foretaste of heaven. God literally comes down and feasts with you. He unites with you in the Lord's Supper. And because God unites with you, that means he unites you with every other Christian that there's ever been. In our day, one of the main problems in our society is disconnectedness. Our homes are built with extreme access, right? We can drive out and be with our friends in a moment. But it also means we can drive straight into our garage and shut the door without talking to a single person. Social media allows us to be connected with unlimited numbers of people and have unlimited conversations. Yet that also means we can not have a single conversation with anyone or, or especially those sitting next to us. We are surrounded by more people than anyone in the history of the world, and yet we are the most lonely people in the history of the world. And as a result, we can often feel alone and far from God, too. And if this is you, God's solution is the Lord's Supper. You can be no closer to God on earth than when he communes with you in his true body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is really here. And because Jesus is really here and you are in communion with Christ, that means you are in communion with all the other members of Christ's body as well. And it means Jesus keeps you and the whole church on earth with him in the one true faith to life everlasting. One of the great Lutheran theologians, Johann Gerhardt, said this about the Lord's Supper. He said that Christ wanted to be near us and to come to us, and so he became a man. But that still wasn't close enough. It wasn't enough for Christ. So Christ 
desire to become our food. He said, nothing can be nearer to us than what we eat or drink, because this penetrates us in the most inward manner. Thus, the most divine sacrament will make us divine men until we finally shall enter upon the fullness of the blessedness that is to come, filled with the fullness of God and holy like him. This is another thing the Lord's Supper does. It gives eternal salvation. Isaiah says that on this mountain where the feast is, that God will destroy the shroud that covers all peoples, the burial cloth stretched over all nations. There is no more pronounced aspect of the fall into sin than death. Some people may face various and different trials, but every person will face death. And yet God has swallowed up death forever. And in the Lord's Supper, we see it. Christ is alive in the flesh, in his body and blood. It is permeated with Christ's exalted divinity. And so Christ's forgiveness is given to us along with life and salvation. Jesus said in John 6, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. But even though the Lord's Supper gives us forgiveness, life, and salvation, and it gives us a preview of heaven, we're not in heaven yet. And so maybe you're thinking, well, that's all fine and good, but what does the Lord's Supper do for me now? Why do I need the Lord's Supper now? Well, precisely because you are not in heaven yet. The Lord's Supper comforts us comforts you in your daily burdens. One thing that we tend to do to try to escape our daily burdens and the daily grind is going on vacation. Maybe to the cabin or, or to the lake or, or wherever. But it's never a true rest, is it? There's always more work to be done at the cabin, which means what? More stress. There's always new schedules on vacations because there's more people together. So there's more stress. There's always different opinions on what to do. And so again, it means more stress. For me, at least, it always seems I need a vacation after my vacation. I want to tell you a story about uh, St. Augustine. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He was born around 354 A.D., the story of Augustine's life may be described as that of a homeless person's journey to find his true home. And when he arrives, he realizes that he didn't seek God. God found him. And when he reaches his home, that is Christianity and the Christian faith, he finds both his identity and God's. The two always go together. And he said this, and this is one of my favorite quotes. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There is no peace, no comfort that the world can give that will give our hearts true rest. No vacation, no amount of comfort, food, 
no amount uh, of getting involved in different activities or engaging in social programs can ease the guilt of our sinful conscience or take away the burdens that we face. But Jesus won for us that peace which the world cannot give. And it's to that rest that Jesus invites us to partake of in the Lord's Supper. He says to me, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will wipe away the tears from every face, and I will take away the shame from every person. Come to my table. Regardless of our burdens or problems, at his altar, and we have a wonderful visual example of this at our, our altar particularly, Jesus' gracious arms are extended out to us, extended out to us in love, offering to us himself. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come each with our own particular struggles and unique battles that we face in the Christian life. We each have our own weaknesses and shortcomings. For some of us, that may, may be fighting sexual passions. Some of us may be having difficulty being patient, patient with our kids or with our spouse. Some of us may be fighting greed and covetousness. Some of us may struggle with self-pity and the inclination to complain. Some of us may fight discontentedness and laziness. Each of us is different, and each of us have our own struggles. And some people, if they're struggling, they tend to be afraid of, of coming to get the rest they need the most. They're afraid of coming to their pastor because they're afraid that they might look like a sinner. Well, guess what? I know you're a sinner because I'm a sinner too. And as your pastor, I'm here to help you. There is no sin, no struggle that you have that can surprise me. And so I will do what Jesus has given me to do. I will forgive the sins of penitent sinners and offer to them only the strength that Jesus himself can provide through his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. There is no sin of yours that Jesus does not know. There is no weakness of yours that Jesus that is hidden from Jesus. And still, Jesus says, Come. Come to my table, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Through the sacrament, Jesus gives you the strength to face whatever problems and troubles are in front of you. Because through the sacrament, you aren't alone. Jesus is united with you. Jesus communes with you. Jesus takes on your burden onto himself by communing with you and by becoming your food. And so, come to the feast. Look, here is our God. We waited for him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.